we ended with Jesus performing the sixth of nine miracles in this section. And <clears throat> the sixth miracle was done in Capernaum, his hometown. And now we're going to pick up at verse 9. This will be chapter 9 and verse 9. It says, And Jesus passed from there, as Jesus passed from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office for the tax booth. Now the other gospel writers call or identify this man as Levi. <coughs> this is the only gospel where he's called Matthew. And we're not sure exactly why that is. It could be that Levi is his Hebrew name and Matthew is his Greek name. Just like Saul is a Hebrew name and Paul is a Greek name. A lot of people think that when uh, Saul was converted, he was his name was changed. That's not the case. He was always Saul to his Hebrew friends. He was always Paul to his Roman friends who spoke Greek. So it could be that this is simply a uh, Hellenized or Greek name. And it says that he was uh, sitting at the tax booth. He's a tax gatherer, which means he works for King Herod, who runs that area. And he collects taxes. King Herod runs the Galilee area and those areas up north on behalf of Caesar Tiberius. So although King Herod is, uh, is says he's the king of the Jews in a sense, and this would be King Herod's son, Herod Antipas, uh, even though he runs and rules that area, uh, he actually works for the Roman government. And Matthew works for the Roman government as well, even though he's Jewish. And as a result, the Jewish people despise him because he takes their money and he sends it on to Rome. That idolatrous Roman Empire that worships false gods. And this man is despised because he's looked upon as being a traitor. So you have to understand what's going on here. Now, he sits at this tax office or at this toll booth, and these tax offices or toll booths were located in one of two areas. First of all, some of them were located at the intersection of crossroads, where caravans came through. And caravans brought goods from one part of the empire to another, from one city to another. And the caravan uh, industry would be equivalent to our trucking industry today. And you know how there are weight stations, and certain taxes have to be paid for what you're carrying. It was the same in Bible time. Or tax booths were located right on the edge of a harbor. And when ships brought in goods, their goods were taxed. There were duties placed on imports and exports. So we don't know whether he was sitting by the seaside or whether he was at the intersection of a crossroads. Uh, but this is a man that no one likes because he's a tax collector. And tax collectors in those days were worse than IRS tax collectors today. Okay? Because guess what? We live in the United States of America. We pay taxes for roads and things like that. And we know that people who collect taxes are just doing their job. But not this man. This man is a Jew. The Jews are under the oppressive arm and hand of the Roman Empire. And this guy is chosen to be a traitor to his people. And that's why 
He's despised and hated by these people. And so, as Jesus passes by, he comes and he sees this man named Matthew in verse 9, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And so Matthew arose and followed him. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. He just gets up and follows it. Doesn't say, hey, I have to bury my father. Like the guy did last week. He didn't say, when we have a holiday in to stay in tonight. This man simply gets up and follows Jesus. Now just imagine the crowds around Jesus. And he calls into the ministry somebody that they all hate. Now think of the one person that everyone hates in America. And imagine Jesus living today and he called that person to be one of his right hand men. You would think that Jesus lost his mind, wouldn't you? And I think that that's exactly the reaction that uh, uh, the people have when Jesus calls Matthew because Matthew is a lying, conniving, extorter, uh, an unscrupulous individual. And if you were Jesus, he would be your last choice, not your first choice in calling an apostle. Uh, but that's the point. The point is that Jesus sets people free. And this is once again an example where Jesus uh, comes in and he snatches right out of the Roman Empire one of their loyalists. And so the Ro Roman Empire diminishes by one person and the kingdom of God grows by one person. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's coming in and he's robbing the Roman Empire of its power and of its influence. And he brings this man right into the kingdom of God. Then verse 10 says this. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Now we know from Luke's Gospel that Matthew has decided to throw a feast. And this is Matthew's house. And he's throwing this feast. It could be a farewell feast. I don't know. He's going to be going with Jesus. You know. uh, but Luke's Gospel says that he... He had, Jesus is the guest of honor. He wants to introduce his friends to Jesus. And so, notice the tax collectors are there, and who else is there? Oh, sinners are there. Now, if you thought choosing Matthew as a disciple was shocking, this is even more shocking, because you see the word sit right there? They sat at the table with Jesus. Tax collectors. Sinners. What kind of sinners? Good old-fashioned sinners? Could be. Uh, more likely, people like prostitutes. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about the outcast of society. These are the people that Matthew knows. These are the people that Matthew hangs around with. He has friends that are in the tax collecting business. They go out and have a beer together after, after work. You know, that's the kind of people that he hangs around with. You know who else hangs in those beer halls, don't you? Yeah, there are all kinds of people in those beer halls. Well, these are his friends. And he invites them to sit at the table, and Jesus is the guest of honor. That word sit or sat is the Greek word kline, from which we get our word recline. This is not a typical supper like you have on any given day of the week. This is a formal banquet where people actually recline. And they reclined on their left elbow and they ate with their right hands. They didn't have knives and forks. 
And so they would, you, just like you see in the Roman movies, movies about Roman Empire, where people have little things on their head and they sit there on their left elbow and they eat. And this was a formal banquet, and to come to this banquet, you had to be invited. Think of a banquet that you go to nowadays. It's by invitation only. Now, your evening meal isn't by invitation only. But a banquet is by invitation only. This is a full banquet, which means it's going to have about a two-hour meal and a two-hour symposium, which is going to include wine flowing and a lot of entertainment. Okay? Just like when you go to a banquet. You have a meal, and then guess what you have? Entertainment. You have a speaker. You have music. And this is the kind of banquet that uh, Matthew is holding. Okay? Now, he invites his kind of people there, and Jesus is the guest of honor. People on the margins. That's what you need to realize. These are people on the margins. That's what Matthew's about. Jesus is always reaching people on the margins. So look what it says in verse 11. That raises some eyebrows. Look what it says. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, notice they don't speak to him directly. They say to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So here we have the first interruption of the meal. Now, what motivates this question? Why do they ask that question? Because in both Roman and Jewish society, you only ate with your kind of people. If you were a senator, you would eat with senators. If you were wealthy, you ate with wealthy people. Jesus is a teacher in Israel. He would not be eating with sinners and tax collectors. That is ridiculous. The Pharisees don't eat with tax collectors and sinners. Because they're pious people. And Rome had a system of stratification. It was a pyramid system with Caesar at the top, the number one citizen. And then the senators, and then the equestrian class, and the military, and it went all the way down to the peasants, and then below the peasants you had tax collectors and senators. <laughs> and you ate with your kind of people. Jesus should have been eating up here somewhere. He's eating with people down here somewhere. And the Pharisees want to know why in the world is he eating with those kinds of people? Who does your, who does your teacher hang out with? And this is a, an accusation. There must be something wrong with him. That's what they're saying. You shouldn't be following him. You should be following us. We're the ones that hold the traditions of Israel. We're the ones that, and the scribes, we're the ones that interpret the law for you. Why are you following this renegade who eats with tax collectors and sinners? So they're asking that question. So it says in verse 12, when Jesus heard that, either through his disciples or he overheard it one point or the other, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So Jesus cast himself as a healer. And he cast the sinners and the tax collectors as people who are sick and need help. He's the helper, and they are the needy. And he says, I am going to go where people need help. Now, the only way a doctor can help somebody is if he rubs shoulders with them. 
Why aren't the Pharisees eating with tax collectors and sinners? Well, they're not that kind of people. By the way, what kind of people do you eat with? Who do you hang around with? You ever hang around with people another color? You hang around with people that most people would not be seen with? You hang around with people in the margins? Pharisees don't. Only the sick need a physician. Jesus says, I'm the physician. I'm the healer. Here are the sick people. They need help. I'll rub shoulders with them because I can help them. Notice he cast himself as a healer. There have been six miracles so far, and five of them have been healing miracles. Now he's talking about healing something else. The deepest needs of their soul. So, notice that the Pharisees aren't reclining with Jesus. Why aren't the Pharisees reclining with Jesus? Yeah, they're not sick. We don't need help. We're not sick. See, they don't see themselves as sick people, spiritually bankrupt. They see themselves as righteous people, pious people, good people. And yet, if they are healthy, you think they would want to help the people who aren't. But they're not willing to do that either. They just hang out with their own kind of people. And that's how it was in the Roman Empire, and that's what you did. Hey, that's how it is in our society. Let's face it. So look what he goes on and says, verse 13. He says to those Pharisees, here's what I think you should do. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's a quote from Hosea chapter 6. He says, you know what you guys need to do in light of what you just said? You need to go and read Hosea 6 and learn what it says. Apply it to your life. You talk about a put down. If he asked them to quote Hosea 6, they probably wouldn't even know where to turn. He's treating them as immature little children who need to learn some of the basics of the Old Testament scriptures, and yet they consider themselves spiritual giants. Now, I'm going to make out on Jesus for a second. I certainly don't act like him or look like him, but I'm going to make out on him, okay? And I'm going to say to you, okay? You know what? You need to go and learn Hosea 6. Now, how many of us here could explain Hosea 6? I wouldn't have been able to explain Hosea 6 until I studied this passage. So none of us. So we're in the same boat as they are. We claim way. We're a First Baptist Church. We've been, you know, we're people of the Word. But guess what? Do we really know the Word? You know what we need to do? We need to go and we need to learn that text says. So I want you to turn to Hosea 6. Okay. So Hosea 6 is right before Daniel. It's the first of the minor prophets. If I'm Daniel, then you can go to Hosea chapter 6. Because I don't think that we know the passage any better than the Pharisees. Maybe we can learn what they needed to learn. So, when you find Hosea 6, we'll look at verse 1. And then we'll just read that. Find Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then you'll find Hosea. You'll find Hosea. See, we're worse than the Pharisees. We can't find 
Let's find Hosea chapter 7. Now look what God says through the prophet. You ready? The prophet says, Come and let us return to the Lord. Hey, that's what we need to learn. They thought they were God's privileged people. Come let us return to the Lord. Why? Look at this. For he has torn. He's torn us apart. He's judged us. But he will what? Heal us. Does that sound anything familiar with what we've been reading? He has stricken. But he will bind us up. He will heal us. After two days he will revive us. This is God's plan. He wants to revive the nation. Judgment is on the nation of Israel. He wants to revive the nation. On the third day, He will raise us up. Hey, this starts sounding a lot like resurrection and everything, doesn't it? That we may live in His sight. In other words, we won't only be righteous in our own sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like rain. You can count on it, like the latter and the former rain to the earth. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? Well, there's a reason he asked that kind of question. Because your faithfulness is like a morning cloud. Here one minute, gone the next. Not enduring, not long-lasting. Your faithfulness is like a morning cloud. Like the early dew, it goes away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and your judgments are like the light that goes forth. It hits everybody. That's what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. And here's the reason he's going to do that. Look at this, verse 6. This is the quote. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, here's uh, what was happening to the nation of Israel. Uh, judgments on the nation of Israel. Jesus comes and he calls them and he says, repent. Why does he have to say repent? Because they're heading the wrong way. God's judgment's there. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Get ready. God's kingdom is coming. And these Pharisees don't think they need to repent. They don't need to heal them. They're okay. So they think, oh, all we have to do is make our sacrifice. We'll just go to the temple and make our sacrifice. Go through the religious motions. Go forward with the altar call. Pray the prayer. Get baptized. You know, just put it in the modern context. They just go through the motions of offering the sacrifice. And God says, I'm not interested in your religious sacrifices. You know what I'm interested in? What? Mercy. Hebrew word. It means loving kindness. It means uh, compassion. It's based on God's covenant with Israel. When God established Israel as a nation and He established a covenant, an agreement with them, and He said, here's what I want you to do. Take care of the outcasts, people who are in debt, forgive their sin, return their land to them, help the widows, help the orphans, help those people who are on the margins, help the outcasts, show mercy! And guess what? They give sacrifices. And Jesus said, you know, God really isn't concerned about your sacrifices. What he's concerned about is mercy. And so what's Jesus do? He hangs out with people who need mercy. 
fact, isn't that the Beatitudes? Blessed are the what? For they shall receive mercy. Not blessed are those who offer that sacrifice. They're going to get the mercy. It's blessing. It's God's hunting for the heart. You can go through the motions, and if your heart is far away from God, then the judgment's on you. And so, if you want to receive mercy, then you have to be merciful. But if you don't think you need mercy, because you're all right already, then there's no hope for you. That's why he says later on that the Pharisees commit the unpardonable sin. Because if you don't think you need pardon, guess what? You don't get pardon. So that's the lesson that we need to learn. As an affluent church, as an affluent Sunday school class, is we need to be merciful. That's the lesson. And if you know that lesson, you'll know why Jesus needs to send us back. And you'll know why you should as well. Well, that's sort of interesting, isn't it? And look what he says at the end of verse 13. For I did not come, this is in, again in Matthew, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The word call there means invite. And that's what he's done. He's invited these people to this banquet. This is representative of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is like a great banquet. And that's who he invites into the kingdom. Uh, through their repentance. Through their receiving mercy. Uh, that's why he says, Come unto me, all ye. All ye that labor and are heavy laden. Not just the righteous, not just the well-to-do, even the tax collectors and sinners. So who do we eat with? Our kind of people? Most of us do. Do we ever reach out and take people to lunch that are different than us? How are they going to know mercy? How are they going to know God's loving compassion if we don't demonstrate for most people out there, the only Jesus they'll ever see is us. If they don't see Christ in us, they will not know who Jesus is. And so uh, how do we expect to recline at God's table, His Messianic banquet, if we don't recline with His outcast? Because blessed are the merciful, for they will we show loving compassion to others. We will receive loving compassion to us. So I don't like to eat with those kind of people. I don't, I don't feel comfortable. You know something? Those kind of people are not as different from you as you are from God. And God receives you. And he invites you to his banqueting table. See, when you get into what Jesus says, this has to be real cutting to these people. And either the Pharisees who said that have to go oh, and see their pride, or they have to say, it's got a real trouble there. We need to be see that. So that's the first interruption at the banquet. Now look at the second interruption, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples don't fast. Who would ever thought John the Baptist's disciples would start raising him? And they side with the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees said, why do you eat with sinners? John the Baptist's disciples said, why do you eat at all? 
We fast. Well, you know when the Jews fasted, we dealt with it before. They fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. That was their tradition. This meal was probably held on one of those days. And they wanted to know, why in the world are you eating when you should be fasting? So, Jesus responds, and he responds by giving three illustrations. And each one drives home the point. So look at illustration number one, found in verse 15. Jesus said to them, well, let me ask you a question. Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now he's describing a wedding feast. You know, a wedding ceremony. You've had a ceremony and now you're having the reception. And he says, you know, fasting's not appropriate when you're having a wedding feast. Now, Marlene and Drake celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. Now how about if uh, and I had to say the prayer, but all I couldn't talk loud. And I said, I have to keep it short. Everybody went amen when I said that. They couldn't hear me anyway. And so, how about if I said, and they said, well, come and have, oh, come, you need to have something. And I said, I'm fasting. And somebody else said, aren't you eating? I said, oh, no, I'm fasting. That's the inappropriate, the wrong response. I shouldn't have gone to the wedding feast. Jesus says when there's a wedding feast, you feast. You don't fast. Okay? Now look at this. In this wedding feast, you know how the wedding feasts were, right? Jewish wedding feasts were extravagant, they lasted seven days. And there was a lot of food and a lot of wine flowing. That's why Jesus, you know, from John's Gospel, had to change water into wine. So Jesus is making a contrast here between feasting and fasting. There's a time to fast. And there's a time to feast, but they're incompatible. You can't do both at the same time. You have to do one or the other. The time to feast is when there's a wedding celebration. The time to fast is when there's a funeral. You don't feel like eating. You're mourning over the person. When you feast, that's representative of being joyous. When you fast, that's representative of being sorrowful. And so Jesus is saying, look, now's not the time to fast, now's the time to feast. Now if I were Jesus, I would have known, I know how I would have responded when they said, well, the Pharisees and we, we, we fast off of it, you, you, why did you? I would have said, you want to talk about fasting? Let me tell you about 40 days I fasted in the wilderness. Can you imagine? That would have shut them up, wouldn't it? It's not how to win friends and influence people. But Jesus, whether he was tempted to say that or not, I don't know. But he didn't say that. He said, you know, there's a time to fast. There's a time to feast. And when the bridegroom is with you, that's not the time to fast. That's the time to feast. And he says at the end of verse 15 or in the middle of verse 15, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and then... They, the disciples, will fast. And I'm sure Matthew's readers recognize that those words as referring to Christ's death. When he dies and is taken from them. And during that time when he dies, they all run and hide. They don't need the thing. They're mourning. Oh, we thought he was the Messiah. Oh! That was the time to fast. And then guess what? On the third day, just like Hosea said, on the third day, 
He comes back to life, and guess what the first thing he wants to do is? Let's eat, he says. <laughs> you have any fish? You have any bread? Walks the road of Emmaus. He breaks the bread, opens their eyes, says, let's eat. Fishes a, fix a, fixes a fish breakfast on the Sea of Galilee for the disciples. He's ready to eat again. The kingdom has come in power with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. This is not the time to fast. This is the time to feast. Amen. We should be joyous. See, that's what Easter is all about. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. And so what he's saying is, yeah, John and the Pharisees, they fast, you know. They were sorrowful. Israel was in bondage. Yes, it was a time of mourning. Oh, when's God going to do something? That's the time to fast, but guess what? The kingdom's here. Now it's a time to feast. Out with the old. In with the new. And that's what he's saying here. The old dispensation represented by John the Baptist. It's finished. The kingdom of God represented by Jesus. It's here. And the kingdom is like a party. One of those famous teenage movies once said, Party on, dude. <laughs> I forget which one that is, but it was one of those silly ones my kids used to watch. <laughs> Who knows which one it is, anybody? <laughs> I'm not sure. Okay, so that's the first illustration. Now look at the second illustration. Again, to drive home the same point. The issue is why don't you fast? Okay. Here's the point. Verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch pulls away from the garment, that old frayed garment, and the tear is made worse. Now notice again, he's talking about the incompatibility between the old and the new. The old goes out with John the Baptist, the new comes in with Jesus, it's the kingdom of God, it's now a time for feasting. Uh, Jesus says you don't put a, a new patch on old material. You don't try to repair the old. Jesus didn't come here to repair the old. That old system's done. He didn't come here to fix things in Israel. He came here to do something entirely new, which is to bring the kingdom of God into existence. He makes all things what? New. So he died, and when he died, it was like the old just died with him. And then when he was raised, it was like the new. Came in. in fact, he's the first new man of the kingdom of God, in a sense. He's the first of a new humanity that will ultimately be raised. And the kingdom of God will come in its fullness one day on earth, in its fullness. And we will all celebrate in the messianic banquet. But already it is here in some way, in some sense. And therefore we should be feasting, not fasting. Now the third illustration. Verse 17. Again, just to drive the same point home. What our attitude should now be. Here it is. Verse 17. Nor do they put new wine in old wineskins. Those old, brittle, hard, leather wineskins. Or else the wineskins will break. Because the wine is fermented. Wineskins can't help it. And it expands those old, cracked wineskins. And they break. And the wine is spilled, and the wine skins are ruined. But 
they put new wine in new wineskins, and they are both preserved. So again, the old cannot contain the new because the fermentation will burst the skin. Out with the old, the old dispensation is finished. In with the new, kingdom of God is at hand. So he's not here to patch up Judaism. He's here to preach the kingdom of God. And those among the Jews who repent enter into the kingdom of God. Those among the Gentiles who repent enter into the kingdom of God. The new has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And so with the arrival of the kingdom, there's joy, there is laughter, there is celebration, there is partying, there is feasting, and fasting goes out with the old. There's only three references of fasting in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, only three times. And usually they're related to Jewish people. And so there's very few references to fasting again in the New Testament. So what do we get by this? Well, let me just uh, throw out one or two lessons here. And I think this is the first one that's important for us as individuals. When people look at us, when people look at our demeanor, what do they see? Do they see dour, sour, angry, miserable, sorrowful, looking people? Do they see people who are judgmental all the time? Do they see people who are legalistic, holding on to the law all the time? Or do they see people who are free, happy, excited about Jesus Christ and about being in the kingdom of God? See, if you are looking miserable all the time, and you are dour all the time, and you are judgmental against people all the time, and you are legalistic all the time, it's like you're one of John, John the Baptist's disciples. Not a disciple of Jesus. We reflect the kingdom. We need to reflect it in our demeanor and in our action. And as far as the church is concerned, it's the same thing. A church can get caught up that way. It can be negative. It can be legalistic. It can be judgmental against this group and that group and this and then what we do is we train guys in seminaries and we send them out to these churches to patch them up. You can't patch them up. That's why I recommend my, to my students to go out and start a new church where the Spirit of God is free to move and people understand the teachings of the kingdom of God. So when you see this, this is a call for us to side with Jesus. And not the Pharisees, not John the Baptist, not the old system, but to realize that the kingdom of God is at hand and we need to reflect. Now, in this section, Jesus performs three more miracles, and we're going to pick, we'll pick those up next week. And here's what he says in verse 18. I'll just read this to you. While he spoke these things, this thing about out with the old, in with the new, behold, a ruler came to him, that would be a ruler of the synagogue, bowed down to him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her, and she will what? Live. You think you could have said that to John the Baptist? John, just come over here, lay hands on her, and she'll live. Did John the Baptist raised people. Hey, Mr. Pharisee, my daughter just died. Come and lay hands on her. She... No? 
They couldn't do it. Who does the man come to? This ruler of the synagogue who's part of the old system, suddenly his eyes are open and he says, I need to talk to Jesus. He's the one that can do it. And he will raise her from the dead. And that is a picture exactly of what the kingdom of God is like. We're raised from the dead. And one day, we'll all be raised from the dead, literally, physically. And we'll enter the kingdom of God in its fullness. And that's what we'll pick up next week. Father, we thank you for this scripture. Thank you for allowing me to speak. I waste the whole. Thank you for each person in this class that takes these words and applies them to their lives. We know there's so many that do that. That that you indeed speak through your word. You convict me. You convict others. And we try to do, however imperfect, your commands. Oh Lord, help us to be even more diligent at this. And Lord, most of all, allow us to have a smile on our face. And may people see, see mercy in our soul, not judgment. May people sense the Spirit, not the law. Lord, may everyone realize that you are our Lord and we are your servants. And all that we do, we do for you, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.